Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. Across the table is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. It looks like it's raining outside, so that's fun. That must have started just before I came in. Yeah. Yeah, Anyway, I just looked out the window and it's pouring. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. It was down to a bowl of dark poutine. Yes, it was. That will make sense more later. On December 4, 1872, the captain of the Canadian commercial sailing vessel, De Gracia, spotted another ship in the Atlantic Ocean, 640 kilometers off the Azores Islands. The De Gracia's captain, David Reed Morehouse, thought he recognized the ship as the Mary Celeste, a Nova Scotia-built brigantine. The ship was captained by his friend, Benjamin Briggs. Morehouse had dined with the Mary Celeste captain just before her departure from New York Harbor, only weeks before. The vessel he was looking at was headed in the wrong direction, but out of concern for his friend, he ordered his crew to approach. Captain Morehouse sent a few members of his crew in a rowboat to board the ship and offer assistance if needed. The DeGracia's crew members found not a soul on board the Mary Celeste. All the crew members had vanished, including Captain Briggs, his wife, and their child. The final entry in the ship's logbook did not mention any incident and the valuable cargo appeared intact. No explanation has ever been fully accepted as to what happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste. The ship changed owners numerous times in her 24-year history. Three of her captains, including her first ever, had died on board. Superstitious sailors called her a cursed ship refusing to sail on her thanks to the many odd occurrences that had plagued the Mary Celeste ever since her maiden voyage. Finally, in an attempt at insurance fraud, the Mary Celeste was intentionally run aground by her final crew in January of 1885. The ship soon sank from the damage she'd sustained. 
You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 215, Ghost Ship, The Tale of the Mary Celeste. I have always had a love for things nautical. I was born and grew up in Nova Scotia, a province that calls itself Canada's ocean playground. No matter where you are in Nova Scotia, you're never more than 30 minutes from the Atlantic Ocean. So it makes sense that I grew up with a deep interest in dark tales related to the sea. As with many Maritimers, it's in my blood. Several of my birth ancestors have made their livings either on the sea or in the land-bound industries and infrastructure set up to support seafarers who braved the cold black waters of the North Atlantic. But it was the excursions with my dad, family, and friends to islands and hidden coves around the province's south shore that solidified my love of the ocean. I'll be forever grateful to my dad for that. As a youngster, I recall losing myself in scores of stories of pirates, Oak Island, rum runners, sea monsters, and fishermen and women lost to the ocean near where I grew up in Lunenburg County. A memorial was erected to the memory of some of those lost. From LunenburgNS.com Quote, On August 25, 1996, the Fisherman's Memorial was unveiled in Lunenburg. It is located on the waterfront between Adams and Knickel and the Fisheries Museum of the Atlantic. The monument was shaped as a compass rose, comprises eight three-sided columns at each compass point. Inscribed on these black granite columns are the names of mariners, primarily fishermen from Lunenburg County, who lost their lives at sea from 1890 until the present. The central four-sided black granite column bears this inscription dedicated to the memory of those who have gone down to the sea in ships and who have never returned, and as a tribute to those who continue to occupy their business in the great waters. End quote. Also on the wall of my bedroom, I had a cyanotype poster titled Sable Island, Graveyard of the Atlantic, Shipwrecks Since 1800. On it were the locations of shipwrecks believed to have fallen victim to the island's sandbars over the past two centuries, but Sable Island has a richer, dark history than even those numerous wrecks. From MaritimeMuseum.NovaScotia.ca, quote, Sable Island, a 44-kilometer-long sandbar, about 300 kilometers east-southeast of Halifax, Nova Scotia, is renowned for its wild horses. For sailors, it was the graveyard of the Atlantic, an island hidden by waves, storms, and fog that meant only death and destruction. Since 1583, there have been over 350 recorded shipwrecks on Sable Island. Very little now remains of the ships that were wrecked on the island. A shoe buckle, a few coins, ship name boards, timbers buried in the sand, end quote. Heck, I love the ocean so much I have a massive blue lobster tattooed on my right arm, and I'm planning an octopus or perhaps a kraken for my left. The sea calls to me. This feeling is summarized in the closing stanza of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Galley of Count Arnaldo's. It goes, Wouldst thou, so the helmsman answered, learn the secret of the sea? Only those who brave its dangers comprehend its mystery. 
end quote. Perhaps one day I'll write a book about some of the mysteries of the world's oceans. But there is one story that really stuck in my head. As I was made aware of the story of the Mary Celeste and her relationship to my home province, I became enthralled. It immediately brought to mind Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, first published in 1798, Rime of the Ancient Mariner. In that, a tale of crime, punishment, and redemption, a mariner shoots an albatross, a bird of good fortune, and he and the crew of his ship are gravely punished by an extraneous force for killing the bird. However, by learning to love, the mariner is partially absolved. As his punishment continues, and he is unable to die, the wayward sailor must travel the globe, telling his story to strangers and teaching them the lessons he has learned as a stern warning for them not to do as he did. Although Coleridge's poem was written more than six decades before the events that made the Mary Celeste famous, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it for its eerie parallels to this case. Why is it that so many poems about the ocean are all always about danger? Well, because it's a dangerous and dark and weird place. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the poet E.G. Pratt? E.G. Pratt. No, Canadian I do not. Canadian poet. Can I tell you, it's one of my favorite poems that has to do with the sea. Okay, sure. It took the sea a thousand years, a thousand years to trace the granite features of this cliff in crag and scarp and base. It took the sea an hour one night, an hour of storm to place the sculpture of these granite seams upon a woman's face. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, I, I take from that it's about, you know, a woman who lost her husband to sea, right? That's kind of cool. Yeah. It was six years before Canadian Confederation, 1860, that saw the beginning of construction of the ship that would one day be called the Mary Celeste. She was designed and built by boat builder Joshua Dewis on Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia, and in a shipyard owned by two brothers related to Dewis by marriage, Joseph and Isaac Spicer. Dewis had built other much smaller boats before, but saw building a large cargo ship as a way to cash in on the lucrative transatlantic trade that had grown up between the new colonies and Europe, especially regarding Canadian lumber, which was sorely needed back in England. That country's wood supply had been decimated over the years of civilization growth. The ship, first christened at her launch on May 18, 1861, as the Amazon, was a 282-ton brigantine. 99 feet long and 25 feet wide. She was built with local lumber sourced from 2,500 acres of timberland owned by the Spicer Brothers. Their contributions gave them and other investors interest in the ship's future endeavors, and a portion of proceeds of any future sale of the vessel would go toward paying them out. Everyone involved believed they stood to make a lot of cash with the small but seaworthy ship. Only weeks later, after being registered in Parsboro, Nova Scotia, the Amazon was ready for her first voyage across the Atlantic. Amazon's hold was stuffed full of Nova Scotian timber. She'd be sailing to England from five islands with a crew of seven under the captaincy of Robert McClellan, an investor in the ship. Only days into her maiden voyage, Captain McClellan fell ill. As his condition worsened, the crew begged him to turn around, but McClellan had a lot riding on the success of this trip. He insisted they stay the course. When McClellan was finally too ill to further perform his duties, the crew turned the ship around and made their way back to Spencer's Island. But it was too late for the captain, and he passed away in his sleep on June 19, 1861. 
A seasoned sailor named Jack Parker was hired as captain to see the ship to England with her cargo. Before the Atlantic crossing, the Amazon made a stop in Eastport, Maine. On the way out of the harbor, she ran over some local fisherman's gear. The journey was again delayed so repairs could be made over several days. The crew breathed a sigh of relief when they finally arrived in London to deliver their cargo. However, the journey back to Nova Scotia was cut short by yet another mishap. In the choppy waters of the English Channel, headed for home, somehow, the ship collided with another brigantine, accidentally ramming the other boat, which sank rapidly. After plucking the sailors from the other ship out of the cold water, Amazon badly damaged herself, made her way into the port of Dover. There she sat again, delayed for several weeks, undergoing extensive repairs to the damage caused by the collision. Although the later trip back to Nova Scotia was relatively uneventful, the crew had begun to think the ship cursed, some saying they'd never sail on her again. I don't know, I'm not a superstitious guy, but I don't think I would be really comfortable on sailing on a boat that just kept having mishap after mishap. You're trusting your life on the deep Atlantic Ocean to this thing that is, uh, has things going wrong on it over and over again. Yeah, it'd be one of those things, though, where you're like, well, okay, we got through that, so everything's going to be fine now. So every time it happens, like, that's got to be the last one. Yeah, right. But it, it typically isn't, <laughs> especially in this case. Yeah, you don't want to be at the bottom of the Atlantic. No, no. Jack Parker stayed on as captain over the next two years, during which Amazon worked mainly in the West Indies trade. She crossed the Atlantic to France in November 1861 and in Marseille was the subject of a painting, possibly by Honoré de Pellegrin, a well-known maritime artist of the Marseille school. In 1863, Parker was succeeded by William Thompson, who remained in command till 1867. These were quiet years. According to Charles E.D. Fay in his 1988 book, The Story of the Mary Celeste, Amazon's mate recalled later that, quote, We went to the West Indies, England and the Mediterranean, what we call the foreign trade. Not a thing unusual happened, end quote. In October of 1867, on her way to pick up a load of coal to sell in New York, Amazon was driven into the rocks near Glace Bay on Cape Breton Island. The crew abandoned the ship as a wreck. A local man, Alexander McBean, acquired Amazon as a derelict and sold her a year later to an American mariner from New York City named Richard W. Haynes. Haynes, who paid $1,750 U.S. for the wreck, spent another $8,825 repairing and restructuring the ship, hoping again to make her seaworthy and better than before. She was renamed Mary Celeste, the name she became famous for, and registered in New York in 1868. Perhaps it was the renaming of the ship that put the final nail in the coffin of the already doomed vessel. In sailor's lore, it is very bad luck to change the name of a ship after she's been christened. In the book, Treasure Island, the pirate Long John Silver says, When a ship was christened, so let her stay. According to an article on HowStuffWorks.com, quote, Legend says that when every ship is christened, its name goes into a ledger of the deep, maintained by Neptune or Poseidon himself. Renaming a ship or boat means you're trying to slip something past the gods and you will be punished for your deviousness. 
As seagoing vessels are renamed all the time, a ritual has been developed by superstitious sailors that ensures all traces of the boat's name are removed from public record. The paperwork with the old name is to be burned in a wooden box, and the ashes are thrown into the sea with the outgoing tide. It isn't clear whether Mary Celeste's new owners performed this ceremony, but she would have the new name for another four years until the fateful journey she would become so famous for. This leads one to speculate how the renaming ritual is performed in today's digital age. Perhaps it involves throwing internet servers into the ocean. Who knows? Anyway, we'll take a break right here. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? Sailors and pirates are always superstitious. Yeah. And I guess it's because of the dangers at sea. And mm -hmm. so they maybe create these myths about how to keep themselves safe, right? Sure. To remind themselves, yeah. maybe. Do you want to hear some of my favorites? Sure. There there are a lot more that I didn't include in the story that I'm aware of. And I'm just curious to, to yeah. hear what you So you, you mentioned have. the albatross, right? Yep. So, so they're thought to carry the souls of dead sailors. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's considered bad luck to kill one. Um, sure. So, uh, you know, I don't know why you want to, why you would want to kill an albatross anyway, but. Yeah. A shark following the ship is a sign of death of a crew member that's going to happen. Well, <laughs> Yeah, well, if you fling the crew member <laughs> overboard oh, look. into the mouth of the shark, perhaps. Dolphin swimming with the ship brings good luck. Uh, we have had, uh, coming back from the ocean, we have had, uh, I, yeah, dolphins swimming beside um, our boat. Oh. Yeah, I've had that. We've had that happen before. Yeah. Did, did it get your endolphins going? Well, Here's the thing. Uh -huh. My dad's boat was called the Dolphin 2. Dolphin as well or the Dolphin 2? Dolphin 2. Well, there was a Dolphin 1, so okay. it was Dolphin II. <laughs> okay. Yeah. II Dolphin. II. Uh, sailors have long held the belief that whistling or singing into the wind will will whistle up a storm. Well, well that's interesting. Yeah. Let let's let's try whistling into the wind. That that just I think peeing into the wind is, is a bad <laughs> That's idea. That's not a good idea. <laughs> no, but whistling into the wind can't see a storm happening. You would get probably wet the other way, though, the one I just mentioned. But Yes, yeah, you would definitely would. <laughs> hey, do you know why pirates always have earrings? I kind of do, but I, I'm curious to hear what you've so learned. A pierced earlobe on a sailor meant that he had sailed around the world or had crossed the equator. Right. So superstitious sailors uh, wore gold hoop earrings because they believed it brought good fortune. And some of them thought that the gold would pre prevent the wearer from drowning. Interesting. Uh, that's really interesting. Also, uh, 
they wore the gold and those kind of things as a sign of status. Mm -hmm. And uh, if they had a diamond in their ear, like a diamond stud in their ear, typically it was in case they ever got into money trouble and they could just give the diamond to somebody. Smart. <laughs> yeah. Put in those gold hoops and remember who you are. Um, manta rays. Mm -hmm. They thought they could... Uh, sailors thought that they could attach themselves to the anchor and drag the vessel under the waves into Davy Jones's locker. Ooh, yeah. Mm. M manta rays are an interesting looking creature. They look like an undersea bat. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I love to see manta rays. And they're beautiful. On my Apple TV, there's a screensaver screen with all those manta rays. It's really, really neat. Susie and the Banshee has a song called, or Susie, Sue, has a manta ray song. Okay, cool. Yeah. The ship changed hands again in 1869 after Haynes was unable to pay his bills related to the vessel. Mary Celeste had never actually sailed at all under Haynes' ownership. The captain who stepped aboard in the fall of 1872 was a salty New Englander named Benjamin Spooner Briggs. 37. Good old Benny the Spooner Briggs. The Spooner? <laughs> the Spooner. Like he, does he like to spoon? Is that what it is? Or does hey, he... you know what that reminds me of? Spooning? It's like cuddling? Yeah. You know how like stri straight folks have that app called Tinder? Yes. And gay guys have Grinder. Yes. Well, I thought of making one just no sex. For cuddling? For cuddling and call, call it Cuddler. <laughs> well, what about Spooner? S-P-O-O-N-R. Yeah, or cuddler. Cuddler, yeah. And, I am... and it's just for cuddling or spooning. Oh, gosh. When you're feeling lonely. Trademark, Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton, <laughs> 2022. <laughs> Briggs, it was said, was not superstitious, but was devoutly Christian. Although warned of the ship's reputation and the breach of tradition in her name change, he agreed to take over command of the brigantine. God would protect him and his crew from all that spooky nonsense. Briggs, after being given shares in the ship as partial payment, began putting together a crew for the scheduled voyage to Genoa, Italy, to which the Mary Celeste would be ferrying 1,700 barrels of denatured alcohol. It took Briggs a while to gather the seven crew members required for the voyage. Some sailors knew of the ship's sketchy reputation, and refused to sail aboard the vessel. Briggs chose the crew for this voyage with care. First mate, Albert G. Richardson, was married to a niece of Winchester, the ship's new owner, and had sailed under Briggs before. Second mate, Andrew Gilling, aged about 25, was born in New York and was of Danish extraction. The steward, newly married Edward William Head, was signed on with a personal recommendation from the ship's owner. The four general seamen were all Germans from the Frisian Islands, the brothers Volkert and Gottlieb Goudschall. A later testimonial described them as peaceable and first-class sailors. In a letter to his mother shortly before the voyage, Briggs declared himself eminently satisfied with the ship and crew. Sarah Briggs informed her mother that the crew appeared to be quietly capable, quote, if they continued as they have begun, end quote. Briggs decided he would bring his wife, Sarah Elizabeth, who was also his cousin, and their two-year-old daughter, Sophia Matilda, along for the voyage. The couple's seven-year-old son was to stay behind with his grandparents so he would not miss any school. 
The decision to bring his wife and daughter aboard again flouted nautical tradition and seagoing superstition. What's wrong with that, you say? Well, according to New Zealand's Maritime Museum, quote, women were bad luck on board because they distracted the crew, which would anger the sea, causing treacherous conditions as revenge. However, conveniently for the male crew, naked women calmed the sea, which is why so many figureheads were women with bare breasts. Quote. Not exactly woke thinking. Not woke at all. No. <laughs> I'd like to think that I'd be a bit of a distraction for the crew as well. Well. Why does it have to be a woman? Why does it have to? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. May, maybe you would like to be distracted. I would love to be a distraction for the crew. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the crew, really. Some of them yeah, weren't this, exactly. This is true. Yeah. Like, not, not the, I matey. Right? Yeah, the smelly unwashed. Hey. You're going to London this summer. I am. So I'm going to send you a place. This is really cool. Uh, there's a longboat on the Thames that has a gold bust of Grace Jones as the figurehead. Wow. Yeah, really cool. That is really cool. Like, Yeah, it's Grace Jones in her crop top uh, era, you know, when she had the little flat top. The flat I top. really want to see that it's in really person cool. and yeah. take some pictures of it. Yeah, it's cool. After dining with friend David Reed Morehouse, captain of DeGracia, the Briggs family and the seven crew aboard the Mary Celeste were ready for the Atlantic crossing scheduled for November 5, 1872. The weather, however, was bad, and the seas were too rough to start the journey. They were delayed two days, waiting for the angry ocean to calm down a bit. The Mary Celeste left her moorage at Staten Island in New York Harbor on November 7th. No one ever again saw the ten people on board as she made her way out into the ocean. DeGracia departed eight days after the Mary Celeste, also on her way to Genoa, Italy, laden with a cargo of petroleum. As the two ships were headed to the same location, their routes matched almost exactly. On Wednesday, December 4, 1872, at around one o'clock in the afternoon, the De Gracia's helmsman reported a vessel about 10 kilometers off the bow and heading toward them. They were midway between the Azores and the coast of Portugal. As they approached, they noted the ship, in partial sail, was sailing strangely, wobbling back and forth in the wind, almost to the point of broaching, as though no one were at the helm. For you landlubbers, broaching is when a sailing vessel loses directional control when traveling with a following sea. The vessel turns sideways to the wind and waves and in more serious cases may capsize or pitch pole. Through his spyglass, Morehouse noted that the approaching ship's mainsail was furled and the one on the topmost mast had been torn to shreds by the wind indicating that she may have been untended for some time. He could see no one on the ship's deck, which he was now beginning to realize might be the Mary Celeste. When they were close enough, De Gracia's crew attempted to use their flags to signal the ship, but there were no replies. Morehouse sent De Gracia's first mate, Oliver DeVoe, and another sailor in a rowboat to see whether anyone was on board. The pair rowed toward the ship, calling as they went, but there were no answers aboard the brigantine. Sure enough, there on the stern of the vessel was her name, Mary Celeste. DeVoe and his deckhand had trouble getting safely alongside the ship as it bounced wildly in the wind, but eventually they made it on board, expecting to find a crew perhaps stricken by illness and too weak to effectively sail the ship or answer signal calls. The ship, however, was completely abandoned. There was no sign of anyone on board. 
a single lifeboat was missing, as was the sextant and all the documents regarding the ship's cargo. The contents of the ship were all still present. Nothing seemed to be missing. According to Wikipedia, DeVoe saw that the cabin interiors were wet and untidy from water that had entered through the doorways and skylights but were otherwise in reasonable order. He found personal items scattered about Briggs' cabin, including a sheathed sword under the bed. Galley equipment was neatly stowed away. There was no food prepared or under preparation, but there were ample provisions in the stores. The ship's cargo had been strewn about, most likely due to the rough ride, as she'd been on her own for some time, and the hold had taken on water, and it sloshed about, as there was no one present to operate the pumps. There were no signs of violence. No blood was present. The glass on the ship's compass and clock were broken. The last entry in the ship's log was November 5th, 1872, and it did not give any indication as to an event leading to the departure of the crew, only that at the time the ship had been off Santa Maria Island in the Azores, nearly 740 kilometers from where she'd been discovered by the De Gracia. Morehouse led his own crew to pilot the Mary Celeste, and the two ships sailed toward Gibraltar. Under her new pilot's hand, the Mary Celeste had a few sketchy moments. One, when she was encompassed by thick fog that so obscured the view of the shore that she almost crashed into the rocks. But eventually, Mary Celeste was in port again. Morehouse's crew were very upset, calling the ship cursed, and once they disembarked Mary Celeste, they all refused to set foot back on board. English authorities immediately began to look into the matter. The questions on everyone's mind were, where were Briggs and his family and the crew? What had happened to them? Did they abandon the Mary Celeste willingly? If so, what drove them to leave the safety of the ship in favor of the cold Atlantic in a small lifeboat? And where was that lifeboat? The first hypothesis taken into consideration by the English inspector Frederick Solly Flood was that the two captains, Morehouse and Briggs, who were friends, had made an agreement to defraud the insurance company who'd underwritten the ship and divide the profits from the sale of the Mary Celeste. Indeed, the brigantine, as established by the law of the sea regarding salvage, now belonged to Morehouse. But where were Briggs and the others on board? Had something more sinister taken place, perhaps a betrayal? One theory included Morehouse laying in wait for Briggs, but as Mary Celeste had left eight days before De Gracia, that wasn't very plausible. Flood kept pointing fingers. When the ship's owner, James Winchester, arrived in Gibraltar on January 15, 1873, to ask about the release of the ship's cargo, Flood accused him of hiring pirates to raid the ship and murder the Briggs family, or perhaps, Winchester had planted a murderous mole on board, who'd ambushed Briggs and the others while they slept. But as there was no blood nor any real motive other than Briggs' shares in the ship, that theory did not hold water. Perhaps it was a mutiny, or worse, unrelated pirates who'd boarded Mary Celeste and murdered everyone or had sold everyone aboard into slavery. This theory didn't make sense either, as there were valuable items including the sword and cargo left aboard. Some surmised that the ship had not been as seaworthy as the owners had hoped after her recent refit. They posited that there had been issues with the ship in heavy seas and rather than stay aboard, Briggs and his crew abandoned Mary Celeste. That theory didn't make much sense either as Mary Celeste was very much afloat when she was discovered and a small lifeboat would not have been the place to be. 
Maybe a tsunami from an undersea earthquake had swamped her, and the crew, fearing Mary Celeste would sink, bailed out into the lifeboat, again to take their chances in the ocean. The tattered sails, some thought, could have been caused by a massive water spout, a sea tornado, and it was that event that had driven the crew away. There was also a theory that there had been an explosion aboard the Mary Celeste, caused by her volatile cargo of denatured alcohol, and that Briggs and crew, fearing for their lives, had fled. There were no indications of anything being burned aboard Mary Celeste. However, there were nine empty alcohol barrels. The alcohol in the barrels, being denatured, would not have been drunk at any point, as it is not potable. Potable? Mm-hmm. That's a fun word. Yes. It, I looked it up. Okay. It comes from the Latin potare. Yes. Which means to drink. Potare. It sounds, what, was it a Bobby Vinton song? Volare. Potare. Exactly. So the Romans came up with the word. Of course they did. Yeah. The Romans came up with a lot of things like sewers and roads. <laughs> well, I don't know if they... They did, actually. <laughs> yeah. From dailynautica.com, quote, Another strange thing to consider is that the empty barrels were only those made in red oak, while others made from white oak were still full. An English historian, Conrad Byers, knowing that red oak is particularly porous and does not keep in vapors, theorized that these had scared rather than made drunk the captain and his crew. Briggs had never transported items that were so dangerous and inflammable. He had even mentioned it worried to his friend Morehouse during that dinner that they had in New York before departing. Alcohol vapor is extremely flammable, and even just a spark can cause a violent explosion. But how can we explain that on the Mary Celeste there were no signs of burning? In 2005, a team of technicians from the University of London recreated a scale model of the Mary Celeste, sealing the cargo hold after having introduced butane and other combustibles. They set off the violent explosion. Ethanol burns at a very low temperature. Its explosion is violent, but as demonstrated by the experiment, it burns out quickly and does not leave marks on the wood. Interesting. Some call this the most plausible theory. However, we'll never know for sure what happened. Yeah, we'll never know for sure, but I think that's probably something like that happened. Yeah. Yeah, they, um, something was happening on board. They, they panicked, mm -hmm. got on a lifeboat, and then it capsized. Sure. I, I do kind of find the, the idea of everyone like off their tits on fumes and just sort of like randomly jumping overboard kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Except that there was a two-year-old. That's true. Yeah. That's that's the one we, we need to feel most yeah. horrible about, but yeah. How old would he have been now? The two-year-old? Yeah, like a hundred and... 150-something. <laughs> As there have been no real definitive answers about what happened aboard the Mary Celeste in 1872, over the past 150 years there have been a lot of wild speculations about what occurred. Some think Briggs himself had gone mad and ordered everyone into the lifeboat to an unknown fate driven by some unseen supernatural force. There have even been unfounded claims made by, quote, survivors of the ordeal, citing all kinds of wild occurrences leading to the crew's departure. All of these have been debunked. Arthur Conan Doyle, later Sir, a 25-year-old ship surgeon, who would go on to pen the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, took a run at a fictional theory about what happened aboard the Mary Celeste. 
in the story, a fanatic named Septimus Goring, with a hatred of the white race, has suborned members of the crew to murder the ship's captain and take the vessel to the shores of Western Africa. The rest of the ship's company is killed, save for one sailor, who is spared because he possesses a magical charm that is venerated by Goring and his accomplices. Although written as a lark, some took Conan Doyle's account as the serious one. Okay. Was it some kind of sea monster? Perhaps a kraken? No, I'm not referring to a player from the new Seattle NHL team of the same name, but I'm talking about some kind of massive octopus or squid. <laughs> Release the kraken! Yeah. <laughs> from unmuseum.org, quote, Probably no legendary sea monster was as horrifying as the kraken. According to stories, this huge, many-armed creature would reach as high as the top of a sailing ship's main mast. A kraken would attack a ship by wrapping their arms around the hull and capsizing it. The crew would drown or be eaten by the monster. What's amazing about the kraken stories is that, of all the sea monster tales we have, we have the best evidence that this creature was based on something real. Tales of a huge, many-armed, headed, or horned sea creatures exist from ancient times. The Greek legend of the Scylla, a monster with six heads that Odysseus must sail past during his travels, is an example of this tradition. In 1555, Alaus Magnus wrote of a sea creature with, quote, sharp and long horns round about like a tree root up by the roots. They are 10 or 12 cubits long, very black, and with huge eyes, end quote. The idea of a hungry sea creature plucking unsuspecting crew from the deck of the Mary Celeste may be less far-fetched than you might want to believe. Take the colossal squid, for example. From marinebio.org, colossal squid, also known as Antarctic cranch squid, are one of the largest, most elusive, and mysterious of the cephalopods. These massive squid are reported to measure up to 14 meters in total length with mantle lengths of about 2 to 4 meters, which would make an adult colossal squid quite a bit larger than a giant squid, and they can weigh an estimated 150 kilograms. These amazing creatures were first identified in 1925 when two colossal squid arms were recovered from a sperm whale's stomach. Since then, few specimens have been recovered and there is still very little known about this species. Colossal squids have eyes that measure about 25 centimeters in diameter, which are thought to be the largest eyes in the entire animal kingdom. They also have the largest beaks of any squid, which makes them a fearsome predator, along with the 25 rotating hooks found in two rows on the ends of their tentacles. Colossal squid are a deep water species, living usually deeper than a thousand meters, which makes it very difficult for scientists to gather data on them, though juveniles have been found above 1,000 meters to the surface. So far, they have to depend mostly on juvenile specimens caught by deep sea trawlers. Colossal squids have been found in waters surrounding the Antarctic, primarily south of 40 degrees south. End quote. Perhaps the waters of the Atlantic were colder than usual that year, and a colossal squid adventured north, meeting up with a Mary Celeste and thinking she was a sperm whale, one of the squid's favorite meals, and then attacked the boat. As the Mary Celeste only drew four meters of water, colossal squid's tentacles would have been long enough to entangle the ship, as you've seen in those famous Kraken paintings. Could have... Mm, probably not. Probably <laughs> Yeah, probably not, but it's a fun one to, to think yeah, about. Well, you don't know what's down there, do you? Yeah. 
I'm actually, I'm very seriously considering my next tattoo to be of the Kraken, a Kraken. Okay. And a ship or something really cool, like a Kraken entangling a ship Okay. on my left arm. Is a Kraken in the Pacific as well? No, but whatever. Because your tattoos are very Atlantic. Well, this one is East Coast. My yeah. lobster is East Coast, but well, there's octopi in the Pacific, so I could potentially just say yeah. Octopuses. Yeah. That was an interesting Roger Moore movie. <laughs> anyway. After the events of 1872, sailors were afraid of the Mary Celeste, and future owners didn't hang on to her long. From DailyNautica.com. In her last 11 years of life, the brigantine changed owners 17 times. Her last captain, Gilman Parker, deliberately sank her in the Rochelais Reef off the island of Haiti. Parker's intent was to defraud the insurance, simulating an accident that had never happened by setting fire to the ship to hide his scam. But the Mary Celeste wanted to have the last laugh and refused to catch fire. Parker was therefore dragged into court by the insurance company and found guilty. Considering, however, the reason behind the fame of that ship, the judge decided not to rub salt into the wound. He sentenced the captain to pay a fine, but avoided putting him in jail. His destiny, however, was already marked. Three months later, the false castaway died. Of his two partners in crime, one committed suicide, and the other ended his days in an insane asylum. End quote. From Brian Hicks' book, Ghost Ship, quote, More than 70 years later, when its name was known throughout the world, James Franklin Briggs, a nephew of the ship's doomed captain, said the little half-brig had been misnamed. Instead of Mary Celeste, which meant Heavenly Mary, Briggs suggested they should have called her Mary Diables, or Mary the She-Devil, for she brought disaster on every man that put his trust in her, he said. Before we put a pin in this episode, I have something that I know, Matthew, you will appreciate. A listener from the UK gave me a heads up about a British advertisement that portrayed the crew of the Mary Celeste as pirates and that they abandoned ship for bowls of Weetabix breakfast cereal. Here's the audio. It was a ship all the other pirates feared. Even black, blue, red, and yellow beard. Now the captain was as rotten as they come and never once thought to write to his mum. Oh. Mary Celeste. What you got? He's got the meanest, cruelest pirates ever pressed. Bad boys. Until the boatswain cried from the crow's nest, there's a ship to the west. Shivery timbers walked the plank. SOS, swim for shore. Pieces of eight. Abandoned ship. It wasn't magic. Oh, ghostly tricks. What was it? It was down to a bowl of wheat a bit. That's why they found no pirates aboard the Mary Celeste. Isn't it interesting how everything becomes fodder at some point for advertisers? Matthew. <laughs> don't, don't point your finger at me. Well, it, did these guys do their homework? It sounds like what the uh, advertiser did was just read Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story. That they were pirates. That was fantastical. And yeah, that they were pirates. They weren't pirates. Uh, it's called the suspension of disbelief. Yeah, it is a fun commercial. Yeah. It, it is a really fun commercial, but, um, and we'll include a link to the video so it, you can it's see. It's actually, if you think about it, it's actually rather high-minded. 
Like yeah. a commercial for cereal that's bringing in the Mary Celeste. Like you just would not get a commercial like that these days. No, probably not. Right? Because it 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 uh, means you need to know a bit of history. Oh gosh. <laughs> well, yeah, history today is what I did yesterday. Typically, that's all you can remember. Well, yeah, because we're so inundated with information, all the. All the important stuff has kind of been pushed out, and now all we have is cat videos. The morning is the morning is is history in the afternoon, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. It's bizarre. So, Matthew, you did not grow up around the ocean. Do you feel as drawn to it as I am? No, not okay, really. Yeah, it, that but makes sense. I think though. we crawled out of the ocean four hundred million million years ago for a reason. Sure, because we were you we know were tired it? of the damp. You know what ruined it for me, Jaws. Jaws ruined the ocean for you? Well, I grew up, actually, I grew up, I could probably swim before I could walk. Mm -hmm. I grew up splash around in Lake Huron. Yeah. And my parents had to convince me after I saw Jaws that there's not sharks in Lake Huron. In Lake Huron. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but, I mean, I, now that I've moved to the West Coast, I've been here for six years, mm -hmm. I'm getting sort of a, more of a relationship with the ocean. More of a, a a better relationship with the ocean. Yeah, when you live close to it, you you tend to understand it more. Like, I'm 50 meters from water, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's False Creek, but it is essentially a harbor off the ocean. Right? Yeah. It eventually leads to the ocean. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, it's funny how once you've lived near the ocean, you begin to understand it a lot more and you, you feel... I feel drawn to it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of why I was so willing to move to British Columbia because, A, I knew of British Columbia because I'd been here when I was six, but also there's an ocean here. Yeah. And I'm comfortable around water. I just, it's just me and water are a good thing. If you look, I mean, because human beings need water so badly, we congregate around water yes. a lot. Like, where are cities? Always around water, river, a mm. lake. Those kind of things. And not just because they were the easiest places to access. And water is also a place that can be used for travel. It is something we need. I have a rule about visiting cities for the first time. Okay. I always try to do a, if there's a river going through it, a, a river tour. Because it gives you a perspective of the city mm -hmm. with some distance that you can't, you can't get elsewhere. I did a... a a tour of the Seine when I was in Paris. Yeah. Do you see the little mini Statue of Liberty? Yeah. I've seen all of those yeah. things. Yeah. Um, so I plan on doing that in London when I'm there in July. The Thames tour. The Thames. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, yeah. You, you jump on the boat right near, um, right on the opposite side of the river from the aquarium. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll give you all the details. All the deets. But of course, I'm I'm actually on the water five times a week with Captain Steve. Captain Steve. Now, Captain Steve looks like a pirate. <laughs> yes. and he, he looks even, salty dog. He even growls like a pirate. Arr. He drags you to the little ferry boats in Vancouver Harbor and the Granville Ferry. Five days a week. Five days a week. And uh, so have you seen really cool stuff in in the harbor at all? Have you seen any wildlife? Uh, I saw a seal yesterday. Oh, cool. Um, I'm just outside, not not in False Creek, but I'm walking in the morning Yep, along the seawall. Mm -hmm. I saw a gray whale. I think it was a gray whale, either gray or the other kind of whale. Okay. Just swimming beside me. I don't know what the other kind of whale would be, but it would be mm, a whale kind of, of some the size of a gray whale, but not quite, hmm. but not gray. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Um, So... Is is taking a cruise something you would do? Mm, not really. 
I mean, if I could have like the nice suite, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I, I, my concern with going on a cruise is you're trapped with a bunch of people. I'd like a high end one. Yeah, I wouldn't want sort of a party boat with, yeah. and I hate buffets. Yeah, everything that's supposed to be hot is cold. Everything that's supposed to be cold is warm. It's like the rubbery. Uh, scrambled eggs that you get. Yeah. Well, there is a great buffet that we are going to hit, hit up when we are in Las Vegas. And it's the breakfast buffet at the Paris because they have chefs there making stuff for you. Okay. In front of you for the buffet. So you go to different stations. There's a crepe station there. It's amazing. Can I send you up and go get my food for me? No. Well, in restaurants, you're supposed to sit down and get served. I don't get buffets. They're weird. Send me up. <laughs> Mike, I need a crepe. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, you don't know what you're in for. Oh, I, I kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, though. It's the end of the month. It's really I know getting it's close. Happening soon. Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 215 Ghost Ship The Tale of the Mary Celeste. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. All right, let's take a listen to our first voicemail. Hi, I'm just calling from um, a small town in Manitoba. I grew up um, right by Wawanisa, Manitoba, and there's a little, well, not anymore. There was a house. Um, it was called the Criddle Farm which was apparently the first family in the area to come out here. Um, He had actually two wives move out here with him at the same time, and each wife had children. There's a lot of rumors that he didn't tell the wives about each other until they moved here. Um, And then there's rumors that he had actually ended up killing the whole family, like both wives and all children. There's rumors that, you know, the family just left, rumors that he killed just one family and the other one was alive. It's up to you guys, whichever one you want to believe. Um, That's the Criddle Farm. It's spelled C-R-I-D-D-L-E, and then farm, um, by Wawanisa, Manitoba. Um, I thought maybe you guys would like to uh, look into that. Oh, and um, someone had actually burned it down because they believed that people that were haunting it were going to uh, attack them. Um, so, yeah, if you guys wanted to look into that, just, I guess, look into it. Uh, thanks. Bye. Oh, oh, wow. The Criddle Farm. I had not, I've heard of a story similar to that. Uh, family destroyers are really tough to, to deal with as a, as a human being. But, um, yeah, wow, what a weird story. I thought Wawaniso is just an insurance company. I guess it's a place. <laughs> I guess so. But um but so strange Criddle Farm and and haunting as well and people burning down the place because yeah. they thought it was haunted. Well, yeah, it's it's like Sounds like it, it's one of those interesting odd ones, you know? Yeah. The sound of it. it might be worth a look. Let's mm. we'll we'll take a peek at that for sure. Thank you, Wawanisa. Wawanisa. <laughs> Yeah, she didn't give us her name, but whatever. We'll call her Wawanisa. Yeah, here's another short little voicemail. Let's hope it's nice. Gentlemen, how ironic that I'm currently traveling in Virginia.
Virginia on I-77 on what I lovingly refer to as the taint of Virginia <laughs> because it's between Virginia's tunnels. <laughs> anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. And go take a shit in your hat. Oh, my God. Oh, he's dissing my grandmother there. What, your grandma Virginia? Yeah. <laughs> oh, talking stop. about my grandma's tunnel. Stop it. <laughs> stop. The taint. Of, is, I guess he was listening to the episode with the perennium arch. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, dear. Have you ever been to Virginia? I don't think I have. Uh, no, I'm pretty certain that I, I haven't have not. either. I have friends there, but I yeah. have not been there. Let's listen to another short one. Hey there. Um, uh, big fan, first time caller. Listen for a while. I actually. Uh, made the drive from Ontario to BC in 2019 and I had started listening just a little prior and kind of cool to be able to um, yeah learn a little bit about the history of the area prior to arriving um, and oh, well, it sounds like it sounds like you were walking there, and I hope you're okay and didn't fall down like a a manhole or something. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's kind of why uh, I started the show because I wanted people to hear about other parts of Canada that maybe they wouldn't be familiar with otherwise. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of cool. Uh, but I'm worried about you, so let us Please know that you're back. that you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't vo careful voicemailing and walking. Yeah, because th that's very disconcerting when the voicemail <laughs> just ends like that. We're a true crime podcast. Of course we're going to go there. <laughs> I hope something horrific didn't happen. Why are you looking out the window? It's snowing. No, it's not. It looks like snow. Oh, it's sleeting. Yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah. Gross. Anyway, let's move on to our last voicemail. This one looks like a long one, so... Let's let's get comfy for it. Oops, take two. I got disconnected. But um, sorry, I'll oh. take it from the top. Um, calling from Vancouver. Oh, thank Long God! Long time listener, first time caller. Yada yada. Um, thank you so much. You kept me company on my drive from Ontario to BC. So a lot of appreciation for that. Uh, I got out of service area a couple different times, especially in Saskatchewan, and. Uh, Definitely nice to have some company, albeit spooky company, um, in those longer stretches. So thank you for that. And I feel like I'm a little bit more educated on some of the BC spooky lore. I distinctly remember the Babes in the Wood episode and not even having a concept of how big Stanley Park was until I even arrived. So fun information there. Um, calling today in particular, because I just had to listen to the Russell Williams two-part episode and just felt kind of a, a weird connection to it, having grown up at a camp down the road from, um, rumor has it, one of the houses that were an early break-in uh, in Tweed, Ontario. And yeah, having worked at that camp from 2008 to 2011 and not even really being told or hearing much about the case till it all kind of had come out and the the, the trials and everything that pursued like had gone on afterwards um so 
sort of creepy to think that, yeah, a whole kids' camp was so close to some of these early attacks and how uh, how little people in that area actually knew around the whole thing. This is, thank you for speaking uh, in depth on it. it. It feels like it was my first experience really hearing about it, even though it was so close. So thank you for that. And again, thank you for the company. Um, I love hearing the noon Vancouver cruise uh, horn because every single day it reminds me of your podcast. Um, so thanks again. And keep on uh, doing shooting and Another awkward end to a, a voicemail, <laughs> but the, I'm so glad that she called back because <laughs> I was seriously I concerned. Know. I was like, I just picturing you like falling down a manhole or something. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Or, or just getting like nabbed by a cougar in Stanley <laughs> Park or something crazy. But, but yeah, um, you're welcome. And it's really cool when people call in with their experiences, uh, connected to different things that we've done here on the show because yeah, it brings home the fact that there are real people who live in these communities who mm. are affected yeah. by what happened there. It's not just the families and the people who are actually uh, connected to the case directly, but indirectly there's always something, uh, there's always effects yeah. on the community. And, you know, I just keep thinking about the Carissa Boudreaux case from Bridgewater. Mm-hmm. There's still a, a shrine to her there just on the town border where her body was found. And uh, so I went back this time and took some took some photos of that shrine uh, because we covered yeah. her case on the show. And yeah, th that really, that particular case kind of really, I think, took Bridgewater's innocence in a way, mm -hmm. you know, because a mother killed a daughter. Yeah. If you want to go back and listen to our Carissa Boudreaux episode, just search for it on, you know, Dark Poutine and Carissa Boudreaux and you'll see it. But, uh, yeah, interesting. I love voicemails like that, that kind of connect things, connect the dots a little bit. Yeah. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right. I'm looking forward to talking about some patrons and see if folks, uh, where they're from and what they do. First up, we have Sarah Augustine. And Sarah doesn't tell us where she's from. So, Matthew, over to you. Where is Sarah Augustine from? Rome. She's from Rome. Yes. Okay. And what does Sarah Augustine do there in Rome? Gladiator. She's a gladiator. Yeah. Wow. So there were different types of gladiators and different things that they would sort of fight with, like a trident and a net mm -hmm. or a sword or bare hands. Is what, what, What's her specialty? Bare hands. But actual, she wears bare hands. Hands. Yeah, bear's hands. Like a bear's hands. Yeah, it's a big old claws. <laughs> big old claws, bear hands. So Sarah Augustine from Rome is a bare-handed 
Gladiator. There you go. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> Next up, we have Kathy Brown. And I don't know where Kathy is from either. She spells her name without an E, though. So that's okay. I do know a Kathy Brown with an E who I'm not related to, oddly. But what does Ka where does Kathy Brown live? The Mojave. She lives in the Mojave, the desert in yes. the United States. Yeah. And what does she do in the Mojave Desert? Wanders. Oh, wander. So she is a wanderer yep. in the Mojave. Yep. How do you make money wandering? Or does she just like she break into cars and stuff she, like she that? She just, she just, she has a free flow life. There you go. She just lives. It just all works out for her. I like free flow. Yeah. She wanders and she's a nice person. So people like invite her in for dinner and stuff. And she just, uh, she does her thing. That's really nice. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be nice. Just to like it, randomly. Break. They used to call those kind of people hobos. Hobo humping slowbo baby. Remember that song? No, I don't. Yeah. Uh, next we have Sharon Summers and Sharon. We don't know where Sharon lives either. Somerville. Somerville. Well, okay. Summer. Where? Where is Somerville? Springland. Somerville and Spring. <laughs> <laughs> Just the, like the, Matthew had this sort of glazed look on his face. So Somerville in Springland yeah. made up place. Uh, okay, so what does she do in Somerville near Springland? Um, she drives a snowplow. Wow. So she hits pretty much all the seasons. Yeah. Uh, I guess my guess is that she rakes leaves in the fall. No. No. <laughs> she just skips fall entirely. No, she goes to Punta del Este in the fall. <laughs> she goes... <laughs> The annual thing she does. She just goes to Punta del Este. <laughs> the most random thing. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you, Sharon, for... Uh, Thanks for snow plowing, Sharon. And enjoy Punta del Este. Uruguay. Is it Uruguay? Yes. Oh, I would like to see that part of the world. I'm, I'm going to, like I said to you uh, off the air, we are going to, I'm going to travel more and I really do want to see more of the world. I'm just kind of feeling like that's something that I should be doing. Time to do it. Yep. Next, we have our first donut money donor, and she's from Indian Head, Saskatchewan, and her name is Dana Hisiuk. We know Dana. So what does Dana do? Hisiuk. I mean, wow, I am really not good with that name. What does Dana do? Dana does graphic t-shirts. Great. Yep. That's really cool. And she sent us a little note. She said, I found the podcast a few months ago. I love it. I bounce around and also listen at night sometimes. Uh, I fall asleep with it playing. Oh, wow. Today, however, I woke up to the episode about the humble bus crash. And today is April 6th. So I was very impressed with the care and concern shown. So please have a donut on me. And today it feels more fitting to end on a red green, red green quote. So keep your stick on the ice. Well, there you Thank go. Thank you, Dana. That is very nice. Uh, and she did send that on April 6th, and that is the anniversary of that bus crash. So, wow. How, that many, was year, a, how many years ago was that? A, I can't remember couple, right off the top more. of my head. It's oh, been a while. Two or three? More. Okay. But, um, yeah, I don't know right off the top of my head. And I, we won't put any of that in there. Okay. But thank you, Dana Hisuyik. I think I said it right. Hisuyik. 
I think that's the right pronunciation. Anyway, if it's not, I'm really sorry, but uh, I appreciate that you sent us some donut money. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Well, until we return... Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye, everybody. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now, she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.